All right, you can turn to Colossians 3, if you have your Bibles or you're on your phone. We are uh, starting to use the uh, McDonald's drive through mic this morning, not because we need more volume in this small room, but uh, we're slowly moving toward uh, preparing to go weekly Sunday worship gatherings, and so we're adding a few elements here and there to um, improve everything we're doing, and this improves the audio quality of of our teaching. Um, this morning we have it on the uh, Tim Keller setting. You, I won't sound like Tim Keller here, but when you listen to it online, I will. It's amazing. Some of you may be like, who's Tim Keller? <laughs> anyway, um, and we'll be doing some other things, getting ready for Sunday worship, Sunday worship gatherings being weekly, uh, just some training we're going to take you through and preparation, asking people to serve, as well as uh, a presence on the web with our church website and social media, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're getting ready to throw open the front doors of the church. So this is part of it. Um, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're at. As we move into Colossians chapter 3, we are, are going through a very common transition that's very important to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul's moving from chapters 1 and 2, which is very doctrinal, very theological, belief-oriented, and he's moving into chapters 3 and 4, which is more behavior-oriented. Uh, this is what you uh, do. Uh, you see the same transitions in other books, like the books of, book of Romans. You have Romans 1 through 11, which is very much doctrinal beliefs. And then Romans 12 through 16, very practical. This is what you do. Same thing with Ephesians 1, verses, 1 chapters 1 through 3, very doctrinal. Uh, Ephesians 4 through 6, very practical. This is how you live it out. These doctrinal belief sections of Paul, um, sometimes they're also called the indicative se- sections. This is who you are because of the gospel. Um, these must necessarily precede the practical. So before you focus on what you do, you have to realize who you all are. Paul understood this, obviously, and it's very important to who we are as a crossing church. Like we're not trying to create a bunch of rule-following legalists who through personal effort and behavior modification, you look Christianly. You look attractive to the world. We want to be captivated by our identity and doctrine so that the natural outflow, or I should say the supernatural outflow, is behavior in line with Scripture. So it's important to note the imperatives, the commands, what we do always, always, always follows the indicative who we are. Paul built that into his letters, and uh, we need to recognize that and understand that. Um, Because of that, we also note that the change that we live out because of the gospel is also not optional. Like if you truly have been changed by the gospel, these behaviors will show up. If these behaviors aren't showing up, don't start trying to fix behaviors. You go back to what are you not believing about the gospel? Because you've been changed. You're a new person. Uh, We can't just wallow in beliefs and doctrines, though, and be a bunch of Christians who are great at articulating doctrine and theology and the gospel and don't live it out. We have to be a people who flesh out and live out the reality of the gospel. So this transition from doctrine to practical is not just easily seen moving through the entire book of Colossians, but also in our passage today, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, where we will see that focusing on our union with Jesus, indicative, this is who we are, leads to gospel transformation, imperative. This is what we do. 
Beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Father, we're thankful for your word. We thank you for revealing it to us, preserving it for thousands of years so that we can have it today and have full confidence it is your word. We thank you that the power is in your word. It's not in a preacher or a man or a sermon. It's in your word that you've ordained and inspired. And so we we just ask that we would see in your word what you want us to see. And that you would call us to faith. You would call us to repentance. You would call us to, to hope in who you are. Father, work in us today as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see is the reality of our union with Jesus. Um, Paul actually is building off of what he said earlier. So in chapter 2, verse 20, he mentions that uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if uh, you were still alive in the world, you submit to regulations? So building off this idea that we've died with Christ, verse 1 of chapter 3, we've been raised with Christ. Christ, And it's important language just to begin this uh, chapter. My translation says, if then you've been raised with Christ. Literally, it's written in the original language of the New Testament in a way that it it means since. In fact, some of your Bibles may say, since you've been raised with Christ. That's, That's what it means. Since this is a reality in your life, since you've died with Christ... On through the passage, since you've been raised with Christ, verse 3, you've, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who's your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Since those are true of you, what are we going to see? Okay? See the reality of our union with Christ. Because of the gospel, we are united with Christ in death, in burial, in resurrection, and one day in glorification. It's coming. So he who began a good work in us will finish it one day. He is our life. Our life is hidden in him. And so we find that the gospel is a call to believe in doctrinal truths about Christ. The gospel is a call to believe in who Christ is, what Christ did, and to believe those truths have impacted our lives to such a degree that we are united with Christ in death, in burial, in resurrection, and one day glorification. The gospel is not a call to feel something or try and do something, like follow rules or go to church or read your Bible or don't cuss or don't lust. The gospel is to believe that Jesus was the God-man and he did something, death, burial, resurrection, And that reality, that truth that actually happened now intersects our life in such a way that we are united with Christ. We identify with Christ. This is what baptism is all about, as Kendrick spoke on in chapter 2. And the life-changing reality of our union with Christ is this. Whatever is true of Christ is true of us. Because Christ is our life. Because our lives are hidden in Him. So we are united with Him in death. 
So that when God sees the death of Christ as sufficient to pay the penalty of sin, so he sees that that is true of us as well. Not that we did what Christ did, but we benefit from what Christ did because we're united with Christ. God does not see us only as sinners, failures, people who never measure up. He does not see us as we often view ourselves or as we allow other people to view us by our mistakes and our brokenness. Sometimes we can tend to be paralyzed by our past. All we see is mistakes we've made. We see those people who've wronged us, who've failed us, and we let all those past sins, past hurts, either ours or the sins of others against us, we let those define who we are and give us our identity. But the gospel sets us free from that in God's eyes. The gospel says we have died with Christ. All sins, past, present, and future are gone. Cleansed, not held against us. This is the doctrine of justification. We are treated by God just as if we had never sinned. Now this doesn't mean we didn't sin. We did, right? But the blood of Christ in his death cleanses us from all unrighteousness and we are treated by God as though we had never sinned. Guys, get this deep in your heart and soul today. Through Christ in our union with Christ, the God who created and rules the universe sees you all the time as forgiven and cleansed. He sees you like that all the time. Because he sees you in Christ. We don't see ourselves like that, right? We struggle to see ourselves like that. All we see is mistakes and failures and what I don't have and who I'm not. But that's not how the God who created the universe sees you. In fact, this this passage speaks of, of Jesus at God's right hand. We know from other passages that part of what Jesus is doing for us is advocating for us, which doesn't mean that Jesus is up there pleading for mercy because Jared screwed up again. God, you've got to be merciful again. He keeps messing up. Jesus is actually advocating for justice. God, carry out justice on Jared because I've died for Jared's sins. Because I've covered his sins, he is now just. So carry out justice for him because he is just because of me. Every time we fail and sin, Jesus can say to the Father, I paid for that one too. He's good. I paid for that one too. He's righteous. My blood covers that one too. He's all right. And all we see in ourselves sometimes is failure. But God sees us in Christ as forgiven. But guys, it gets even better than that. Because our union with Christ is not just in death, but our union with Christ is in resurrection. We've also been raised with Christ. So what is true of Christ in resurrection is also true of us. And it says that Christ was raised and is now at the right hand of the Father. This is throne room language. You know that in the throne room, to be at the right hand of the one who's on the throne is a place of honor, status, and privilege. For us who have and are believing in Jesus and have union with Jesus through the gospel, he is our life. Paul tells us there, our lives are hidden in Christ with God. So what is true of Christ is true of us. So the Son is at the right hand of the Father, a place of honor and privilege. And so are we. We are too, right there with him. 
as a father feels about the son, so he feels about us. As the father loves to place the son at his right hand, not only because he paid the price for sin through his death, but the father loves to put the son right there because he perfectly obeyed the law. And so the beauty of the gospel is not just that our sins are forgiven, but that we also get credit for the righteous life that Christ lived. <clears throat> and as the Father beams over how well the Son did, so He beams over us who are hidden in Christ with God. It's not just that we barely got in by the skin of our teeth and the Father only receives us because our sins are forgiven, but we belong We belong in his presence because God sees the righteousness of Christ in us and he treats us as though we obey the law perfectly. This is what union with Christ means. Do you see why the gospel sets us free from wallowing in self-pity, shame, guilt, failure, and brokenness? Because that is not how our Father in heaven sees us and that is not how our Father in heaven treats us. We are in Christ. He is our life. We are hidden in Him. The Father says to the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father says to us who are hidden in the Son, this is my beloved Son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And He feels that way all the time about us. Like at your worst, God feels that way about you. And on your best day, you don't add to how much God feels about you. He feels that way about us all the time. You want to know if you're growing in maturity as a Christian. The more you're growing in maturity as a Christian, the less you're wallowing in, in, in sin, shame, fear, guilt, beating yourself up. Self-pity. Because the more you're seeing the reality of who you are in Christ, and the more you believe that even on days that you blow it. Even when you blow it. I grew up in church believing that you get saved through Jesus and then work hard to obey. And the Christians who do a really good job one day will stand before God and hear the Father say, well done. And so we should strive to be one of those people. But the problem is God says that about us from the moment we're united with Christ and he says that about us all through our lives because we're united with Christ. We belong, we are accepted by him based on that union with Christ. Tim Keller said the only legitimate objection to someone believing the gospel when they understand these truths is that it's just too good to be true. Like I I can't believe this. It's just too good. That can't be real. And if that's resonating in your, in your heart this morning, then, then congratulations, you get the gospel. Because it is too good to be true. Like, this is why it's good news. The gospel is not do more, try harder. But behold, look who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what we get to share in. Do you see why it was ridiculous for these Colossian believers to adopt some of the false teachings? To add to their faith in Jesus as though something was deficient. Like, how can you possibly think that adding Old Testament rituals or some belief in angels to this or some asceticism like fasting or self-denial, how can you possibly think that you need that, that Jesus is not enough? Paul says it won't work. The problem is not only did adding all of that stuff not satisfy and bring joy, but it cuts you off from the source of life. Jesus is enough. He did it all. 
And our union with Him brings all that we need in our spiritual existence and our spiritual life. And so it's equally silly and ridiculous to add to Jesus other means and other teachings to, to make up for where Jesus is efficient. Kendrick covered a lot of those well a few weeks ago. I'm not going to rehash all that. You can download that and listen to it. But to add emotionalism and health and wealth, prosperity theology, legalism to anything to what Christ has done, to make anything other than Christ the basis of your union with God is foolish. It won't satisfy and it cuts you off from Christ. As much as we... We want to see the gospel spread through, through, through our church and other churches throughout the city. We pray for other churches in the city. That kind of teaching is pervasive in our city. Right now, this morning, in pulpits all across our city, there's something else you need other than Christ. And it won't satisfy. It cuts you off. It's like being in the ocean in a lifeboat, dying of thirst. And you think, if I just drink the ocean water, I'm going to be Okay. But not only does it not satisfy because it makes you more thirsty from the salt, but it actually will kill you because your body can't process all of that. It's the same thing when we add false teachings to Christ. Any teaching system that does not root itself in Christ, and Christ alone is the basis of our justification and acceptance before God, not one day when we've been faithful enough or we've done enough or proved ourselves, but, but now, today, when you've been united with Christ, you are good in God's eyes forever. Any teaching that adds to that something other than Christ will not set their people free, but will enslave their people to whatever teaching they've added to Christ. Because now they've got to perform up to some level in order to be right with God. And it's a lie. Christ has done it all. You need Christ. And once you have him, he is your life. You are hidden with him. Whatever is true of Christ is true of you right now. On your worst day, and on your best day. Right before you commit a sin and right after. It does seem too good to be true. Secondly, that's the reality of our union with Christ. Secondly, this is what brings gospel transformation. I'm not really going to spend a lot of time with this. I want to mention it, but we're going to see it throughout the rest of chapter 3. So gospel transformation, saying no to sin, saying yes to righteousness, growing, maturing, becoming more and more the person that Jesus is making you to be, the spouse, the son, the daughter, the friend, the employee, the employer, the father, the mother. All of this is covered through the rest of chapter 3. So go ahead and be studying that. Don't, don't wait until we show up here on Sundays to, to walk through it. Becoming this person who more and more is being changed by the gospel is rooted in our union with Christ. Something that has already happened. Okay? What Christ has already done. It's not us seeking and finding some new source of spiritual power. Some new secret uh, of the Bible like the prayer of Jabez and you chant it for 30 days. And all of a sudden you're experiencing spirituality as never before. It's not found in that. It's rooted in what Christ has already done in our union in Christ. So you just keep going back. You're going to hear a lot of repetition as part of the, the uh, crossing church. We're just going to keep driving you back to the gospel. Keep giving you the gospel. That's, that's who we are. We don't, we don't have any other message. There's nothing else we have to offer you. We're not going to tell you, you know, take a journal and go sit under a tree without a Bible and just let Jesus talk to you and give you new thoughts that you never had about Jesus and make it a book like Jesus Calling. And that's some spiritual experience that you've never had before. We're going to say that's not a good idea. Jesus speaks through his word primarily. 
It's going to be the gospel over and over, what, what Christ has already done. That's all we got. Which brings gospel transformation. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in this passage. The only two commands in these four verses, verses uh, 1 and 2. He says, If then you've been raised with Christ, you have union with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So what does this mean? To seek the things above and set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth. There's an expression that I started hearing in seminary where you can be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. And that makes sense. You agree with that, right? You can be so engaged and in indulging in the, the, the desires of the flesh where it's just you gratifying the flesh, gratifying the flesh, flesh that you're, you're not laying up treasures for heaven. You're making no impact for eternity. You don't really live like you care for eternity. I can agree with that. But there was a second part to that saying that I agreed with at first, but now you've got to explain it a little bit, where you could be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. So yeah, you can be so earthly-minded, you're no heavenly good. You can be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Now, if that means don't be someone who's detached, aloof, distant, not engaged with life on this earth, someone who withdraws and just kind of flits around like a spiritual butterfly, then okay, I can agree with that. But if it means that you don't need to spend considerable time focused on heaven, then I would have to object and say, hold on a second. Our problem is not that we think of heaven too much. But we think of heaven too little. Tim Keller says, Those who are most heavenly minded are most earthly good. And that's what we see in this passage. Now, it it matters what you think when you think about heaven. So seek the things above. Paul's drawing our attention up. He's obviously drawing our attention to where Christ is. So we would call that heaven. It's not the new heavens and new earth that we're going to be in one day. But it's where Christ is now. So, so what you think about heaven matters. So are you daydreaming about your, how big your mansion on the hilltop will be? Is, is that why you're thinking about heaven? Uh, what you'll get to do when you get to heaven, what you get to eat, uh, what we'll get to enjoy. Uh, if you're like me, you eat something good. Oh, man, this has got to be on the menu in heaven. Like Scott and I are eating vanilla ice cream last night, watching LSU baseball. Man, this is good ice cream. This has got to be in heaven. I'm trying to think. Okay, what's well, natural? It's milk, but sugar's added. It's not very healthy. I don't know. We'll see. Right? <laughs> right? Um, usually when I'm playing a round of golf, I'll think something like, you know, if there's going to be any sport in heaven, it's got to be golf. It's outside. It's nature. It's beautiful. It's you against yourself. It's a lot of spiritual stuff there. Or sometimes we make heaven all about who we'll see. So like parents and grandparents and friends. That's why heaven will be so great. Because it'll be like sitting around a fire pit with everybody that we love for all of eternity. Or, or if we're really feeling very holy, we'll talk about the Bible people we'll see. Well, I can't wait to see Paul, and I can't wait to see Moses, and I can't wait to see the saints who, of old. Or maybe we're captivated by holy thoughts like being set free from disease and sickness and pain and sorrow and hurt and, and, and all the bad things that we experience. And, and having a new body that doesn't get sick and break down and get old, we're going to have a new body that lasts forever. None of that is what Paul is referring to when he says, set your mind on things above. None of it. In fact, I would say that if that is all you think about when you think about heaven and you never think about God, getting God forever, then you miss what makes heaven, heaven. Heaven is heaven because we get God forever, unencumbered by sin, flesh, Satan, anything. 
I think it was Piper who said that if you won't be satisfied with, uh, if, if you would be satisfied with food, friends, and good things in heaven, and you don't need God, then you've just described hell. And you might not make heaven. Heaven is all about getting God forever, which gives us a clue as to what this passage is about. Now, we know, we all know what it means to set our minds on something, right? We leave a good movie, and that movie will captivate our minds for hours, sometimes uh, days, like Interstellar. You know, you leave Interstellar, and for a week, you're thinking, what did I just see? What did I just experience? Um, or you watch a, a, a football game or a baseball or basketball game, and your favorite team loses a huge game or wins a huge game, and you, for hours you're consuming. This is what they did right. This is what they did wrong. Why did they call that play? Why did all of the Cavaliers get hurt? Too bad they're going to lose now. We play our sport ourselves, and we do well, or we don't do well, and we keep replaying every shot in our mind. Like, I can play a good round of golf, man. I'll, I'll go through every shot in my mind and say, that's what I did right. That was good. Keep doing that in the future. Um, or we have a difficult conversation with somebody and we can't quit thinking about what we want to say or, or what did we say, what should we have said. You're single and you think that she or he is the one. And it's almost like you have an imaginary friend with you all the time, that person. Because you're imagining what life would be like if you had them in your life. But Paul says to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth which is everything that I just described. Now, you can't help thinking about earthly things because we live life in earth. We have things to do, right? But what we can do is not make the things of this earth our life. Why? Because he tells us Christ is our life. Christ is our life. So we continually seek the things above, setting our minds on things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. And Christ is our life, and our life is hidden in Christ. Christ is your life, church. Not any other relationship with a spouse, with a potential spouse, with a child. They are not your life. Christ is your life. Sports and your favorite team and hobbies and success in any area of life is not your life. Christ is your life. The success of your kids is not your life. The pain of your family or your kids is not your life. Christ is your life. Not your hobbies, your indulgences, your fears, your worries, your concerns or cares. None of those are your life. Christ is your life. And so for each of us, we have to ask ourselves, what tends to define our life? What tends to grab our mind and our heart over and above Christ? What people or possessions could you lose that if you lost, you think, I would have no life if I lost that or that person? I mean, we go into a panic if we think we've misplaced our phones. If we leave our phones at the house, we have to turn around and go get them because we cannot live without our phones. What gives you your greatest joys? What causes your greatest fears? These are the things that are the earth that we're not to set our mind on and make them our life because Christ is your life. So how does this work? We we can make this the focus of our DNA groups for three years and still be figuring this out. This is very simple, but this is very deep. It's really in line with what we've been doing in DNA, gospeling each other and preaching the gospel to each other. But let me give you an example 
One way I can get my mind and my heart most set on earthly things is when I get frustrated. Frustrations for me take the form of my plans not working out. This is what I want to do today. This is what I want to do this week. And things change. Or frustrations can, take the, uh, can look like um, interruptions in those plans that now I've got to alter and go fix something or do something different than what I had planned. They kind of both go together. <clears throat> New problems arise that have to now be addressed. Sometimes my, by God's grace, I can walk through the temptation to be frustrated and I can preach the gospel to myself and I can be okay. And sometimes I can just be on this low boil for like a day or two, just simmering under the surface because I'm just so frustrated that I'm not able to do the things that I had planned to do. Why? Because my mind and my heart are set on the things of the earth. When I, actually, when I do this, I actually believe that I am sovereign and my plans should work out because I made them, right? Or I believe that I am God and how dare anyone or anything interrupt my life because what I'm doing is the most important thing in the universe. And so obviously as the Spirit of God pursues me and woos me back to Him, as He helps me set my mind on Christ, let's see that not only am I not God, but my plans aren't sovereign and He's in charge of my life. And He ordains my steps, right? So that as, as my plans change or life changes or interruptions come, I see that Christ is behind all that. Christ is sending that my way. And I begin to look for the Spirit to work and move and have conversations with people or get some things done or some sanctification in myself that needs to happen. And that's why he's ordained that day or that week to be like that. And Jesus himself, I see, as I, as I focus on Christ, Jesus himself was always busy but never in a hurry, and he could always be interrupted. And the funny thing is, is when, I, when the Holy Spirit creates that perspective in me, I get through the end of the day or the week, and I'm like, you know, it worked out better that way anyway. Like I had a plan, everything got changed, and it ended up being better. It's like God knows what he's doing. It's crazy. With any kind of negative emotion... We need to identify the root cause behind it. Anger, fear, despair. Because what we typically do is one of two things. We either blame ourselves, it's our fault because we're sinners, or we recognize that we have needs that are not being met, and that's why we're angry, fearful, and in despair. The remedy is the gospel. And to see Christ, to look to things above where Christ is, to see that Christ is our life. So because I have Christ, what else do I need? I mean, really, what else do I need? And I think it, it's, it's accurate to say, I think the Bible teaches this, that God is part of our sanctification. God is actively working in us all the time. To break us of anyone or anything else that we think is our life other than Christ. He's continually crushing our idols, crushing our crutches, so that our hearts are satisfied with Christ above anything and anyone else. And so seeking the things that are above, setting our minds on the things that are above, not on the earth, is seeing that. For the things that you love that are on earth, how would Christ being your life change the way you love those things? For the things you fear or the things that cause worry, anxiety, negative stress, 
How would Christ being your life change how you view or treat those things? Guys, this is what makes us most distinct as followers of Jesus. Not that our lives work out better than other people's lives, but that Christ is our life. And it shows up how our lives go, good or bad. That there is nothing or no one who marks our life or gives us greater joy than Christ. And there is nothing or no one that can crush our life because we have Christ. That's what makes us distinct. One of the common themes in the stories that we love like Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and just movie after movie and book after book is that an ordinary person living an ordinary life gets whisked away on an adventure. On this adventure, they grow, they develop as a person in ways they never imagined. They discover that they're far braver than they ever imagined they were in their ordinary life. They're able to do things, that skills and abilities they never realized that they had. They see selfless sacrifice among them and their friends on this adventure. They have this deep relational bond with people they didn't know could exist because of how they're having to come together to accomplish this task. They conquer enemies and foes they never thought they could conquer. And by the end, they end up saving the world, saving the universe, saving Narnia, saving Middle Earth, whatever. And then often they go back into their ordinary lives. But they're no longer the same. They've been changed forever. Because they've seen and they've experienced another realm. Because of the greater powers they have seen, because of the greater realities they've discovered in themselves, they, they try and live their ordinary, ordinary lives again, but they're no longer ordinary because of what they've experienced, because of what they've seen The problems in their ordinary life don't seem so huge anymore because of what they've done on their adventure. Their relationships are much deeper and stronger because of the battles that they fought in that other realm. They now live in their ordinary world with an otherworldly perspective that causes them to live above the fray, to handle and deal with life differently than those who have not seen and experienced what they have seen and experienced. Guys, the realities that we have seen and experienced because of our union with Christ are more real and more powerful than any fictional story and change us in ways that allow us to live above the fray in this life, that allow us to live differently. Guys, we have a source of deeper joy than anything on the earth. Like your favorite team could win every championship to the day you die, and that's not nearly the greater joy we have in Jesus Christ. We have a source of strength that is stronger than anything that's on this earth. We don't respond to fears or enemies in the same way because of the greater victories that Christ has conquered for us. And we share in those victories. We see and we treat each other differently than the world treats each other because of the union we share in common with Christ. And the battles that we don't fight against each other, but we fight for each other against our true enemy, which is not each other. So we don't do as the world does. I love you because you love me. I treat you well because you treat me well. Because of our union in Christ, there's an unconditional agape love where we show grace and we give and we give and we give even when it's not returned. We're going to go through the rest of chapter 3 and see all this played out in very practical ways. But this morning, my prayer is that our eyes will be open to the greater spiritual realities we have because of Christ. And that we begin to do something about that by seeking the things above, 
setting our minds on Christ who is our life. And then we become a people who are so heavenly minded that we are the most earthly good. Father, we're so thankful for your grace that comes and saves us. Not while we were cleaned up and while we did good things, but while we were your enemies, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the union that we have with Christ. That you see us as you see your Son. And you are well pleased with us because of your Son. And we are forgiven because of your Son. And we are alive forever because of your Son. And so that's why we make everything we do as this church all about him. And so help us not just to see it, but help us to believe it. Help us not just to have these theological truths in our mind that we can affirm is true and maybe even regurgitate on a good day. God, we want to experience it. We want to know these things. We want to feel these things. We want to be driven to sacrifice and driven to obey and driven to to sing and be joyful and driven to give our lives away for the sake of the one who would come and do this. And so help us. God, if there's anybody here who's never believed and become united with Christ through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, God, I pray today you would call them to salvation and help them to believe and trust in Jesus who alone is our salvation. And for all of us, give us a greater heart and a greater love, a greater desire to seek the things that are above and set our minds on things that are above and not on this earth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.